Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is Great Big History Podcast. We continue our History 101 lecture series with the Roman Republic, Part 1, Universe of Battle. The Roman Republic was born surrounded. So the first thing we talk about is political geography, not physical geography. Up to this point, we've only talked about physical geography. We talk about mountains and rivers and and um, the ocean. In Italy, there's not really anything that affects the movement of peoples. There's the Alps, but even that didn't affect the crossings by the Gauls. And so what really affected Italy, or what will become Italy, is the distributions of peoples. And so it's the political geography rather than the physical geography. And so there's a very, the very famous phrase from Caesar, from Julius Caesar in his Gallic Wars, in his book about his triumph of the Gallic Wars, is the first sentence. It became famous in Latin um, because schoolboys in Europe in the uh, early modern period would would that's how they started their Latin. You would read the Caesar's Gallic Wars, and it starts with all Gaul is divided into three parts, and what he meant by that was France had what is today France was that's well Gaul is bigger than. France or was it depends on what version of French you want to talk about but the idea is the land of the Gauls was divided into three large cultural regions Italy was divided into four in the north are the Gauls now the Gauls are foreigners they come from Gaul they come from across the mountains they come from what is modern day France they are foreigners who came into Italy. And in our matrix, we're going to call them dumb and tough. Now, if you're a big Golic fan, you're going to say they're not dumb. But to the civilized peoples, to the peoples who are in cities with walls, living a settled life, the Gauls are, are barbarians. That's in fact, the Gauls are what, what Romans thought of as the barbarians. And so um, Gallic bands also entered the Greek world, smashed. Uh, that's where you, for those of you who know your New Testament, that's the Galatians. The Galatians are Gauls who came down the Danube, smashed into the Greek world, smashed into Thrace, crossed over, killed um, at least one Greek king, crossed over into Asia Minor, and then settled and said, well, we're going to live here. And everyone went, okay. So the Gauls are fairly terrifying, and they are pretty much the model for badass, tough barbarians pretty much until we get to the Goths slash Vikings later on. So the Gauls come from Gaul. They crossed over the Alps. They settled in northern northern Italy, which... The Romans will call, they don't call Northern Italy because it's not Italia. 
because the Gauls are there, so they called it Cisalpine Gaul. C-I-S, Alpine, A-L-P-I-N-E, Gaul. Meaning Gaul on this side of the Alps, on our side of the Alps. There's Transalpine Gaul, Gaul on the other side of the Alps. But the Gauls are the most dangerous enemy for the Romans. They are foreigners, they are dumb, they are tough. They fight with giant two-handed swords. Uh, they, they charged, a Gallic charge scared people. They many times fought naked, painted themselves blue, sometimes lit their beards on fire using um, the wax that came out of their mead because they drank mead instead of wine. So mead comes from honey, so when you ferment it, you get a wax, you put that into your beard, light your beard on fire. Everything about the Gauls was intimidating. They stood six feet tall, where Romans and Greeks stood five foot three. They weighed 180 to 200 pounds, whereas Greeks and Romans maybe weighed 120 pounds. Everything about the Gauls scared the Latins. They're too tall. They're too big. They're too tough. We get the word tumult, tumultuous. A tumult was a Gallic war band on the move. A tumultos, I think it's pronounced. So the Gauls are in Cisalpine Gaul. They're in northern Italy, and they scare the hell out of everybody. To their south are Etruscans. Now, the Etruscans are native Italians, and they are smart. In fact, the Romans will say everything we learned that didn't come from the Greeks came from the Etruscans. So they're smart, but they're also weak. Lots of civil wars, lots of infighting. In fact, it was an Etruscan king who probably brought the Gauls in to Italy in the first place um, as mercenaries. And the Gauls did a Skynet. The Gauls did the Matrix. The, they, they did what robots do when they realize they're working for idiots. They said, what if we just take over? And they just took northern Italy. So the Etruscans, but the Etruscans are smart. They're civilized. They have cities. They have all of these. They have very excellent gold uh, and metal work. You could go to museums, especially in Italy, and see lots of Etruscan artwork. The Etruscans are smart, but they're weak. But they do own Rome for about 100 years. So that's going to tell you something about Rome and their cousins, the Latins. Which brings us to the Latins. The third part, the middle part of Italy, is the land of the Latins, the people who speak Latin. They are native Italians, like the Etruscans, and they are dumb and weak. They're poor. They're in the poorest part of Italy. Rome is Latin. Now, if you're on watching the video, that's Rome is the blue dot on the map. Rome is Latin, but not all Latins are Roman. There's something like, I want to say, 75 Latin towns, villages, and cities in this area. And the Romans will fight them for a couple hundred years. In fact, their sameness meant, and the constant fighting meant it was their longest struggle. The hardest people the Romans ever conquered were, the, were their cousins, the other Latins. Why? Because they had no advantage against them. They fought the same way. They had no disadvantage against them. They all acted and thought the same way. So it was their sameness that made the struggle so hard. 
because it made everything so even. But the Latins were not allied to Rome. They're just all of these different cities. There is no reason why Rome becomes Rome. Rome is willed. Rome is sacrificed. Rome is built by generation after generation after generation. Rome could have easily have been any of the other cities that the Romans conquer and disappear. That's, in fact, what the Romans are terrified of happening. So the Latins are dumb and weak. And then to their south is Magna Gracia, greater Greece. The Greeks, who are foreigners, they come from Greece, they came across the sea, they pushed out whatever native Italians were in southern Italy and Sicily. And they are smart and tough. We've talked about how smart they are. They have Homer and plays and philosophy, and they're tough. They just conquered the Persian Empire, and they have looted the Persian Empire. And so money has flowed in. The Greek phalanx is the best military unit in the world. They are tied to Greece. They are tied, allied with Hellenic states. They are one of the leading parts of Greek culture. They are everything you could, the, the Latins could want. The Latins just look at them and go, wow. So the Romans are surrounded. And that means war is a constant state, which means all men need to fight. But there's no money and there's no time. Remember, the Latins are dumb and weak. Well, why are they dumb and weak? They have no money. They're poor. They're poor farmers. So how are they not going to be conquered? They should be conquered. In this class, these are people who end up conquered and disappeared. They get assimilated in. The Greeks come along. You know, some Greek king like Pyrrhus, Pyrrhus comes along, conquers them, boom, moves on. Or a Gallic war band burns through and they're never heard of again. That should have happened. Why doesn't it? Well, because the Romans will sacrifice everything, their entire culture, for it not to happen. And they will create an army of citizen farmer soldiers. These are volunteers. Well, they're not quite volunteers, but they're not professional soldiers. They are farmers. They are, and they will be citizens. All people will be citizens at birth. Unlike the Greeks, where you got citizenship once you joined the military, the assumption is you will be in the military. You will not not be in the military. But we don't have the money to have a professional army and a militarized society like the Assyrians, like the Spartans. So the idea is it's, it's, a, it's an army made out of the reserves. That's the way to think about it. The U.S. reserves where you, where you be a farmer for five days and then you're a soldier for two days. And then you're a farmer for five days, then you're a soldier for two days. And, and in the summer, you become a soldier for two months, and then you become a farmer again. And there's this constant back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Why? Because war is constant. You're constantly fighting somebody. They're fighting other Latins. They're fighting off the Etruscan invasions. They might be fighting a Greek city. They're constantly fighting somebody. The question is not if. The question is how many. So they gain rights and responsibilities. They always have them from the moment they're born. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's us. 
You have rights and responsibilities from the moment you are born. Your right, you have a say in the government. Now, that doesn't mean five-year-olds have a say in the government. It means they will have a right to vote. You have a right to have a say in the government that will send you to war. What is the responsibility? To serve Rome in the capacity you can. That doesn't always mean join the army, but it usually for a regular old farmer does. Like if you're a blacksmith, you, your, your use may not be in the army. Your best use may be making horseshoes, making uh, swords, making at, at in Rome. But everybody serves. The rich serve and the poor serve and the regular serve. The patricians are the top 2%, the rich 2%. And they will serve. They will be your officer corps. And what they value is a concept called auctoritas, where we get authority from. That's the idea to lead, to be taken seriously. By especially by your peers, it is to lead the people you are better than and to be admired or taken seriously by your peers. That's their that's Octoritas. And that is the richest two percent. This will be your senatorial class, these are your richest families. Everybody else, the bottom 98% are called the plebeians. Whether you're a farmer, you're a blacksmith, you're a worker, you're a miller, you're a merchant, that's your 98%. You are not in the patrician group. You're not in those families. So you're locked out. Okay. What do they value? They value a concept called dignitas, dignity. That's the idea of proper treatment. What we would call respect. I want to be treated with respect. What, you don't really want to be treated with respect. You want to be treated with dignitas. You want to be treated the proper way you feel you should be treated for, the, for your position, for who you are. Women are citizens at birth. This is different than, remember in the Greeks, we said women aren't citizens. In Rome, they are citizens. Why? Because I didn't say serve in the military. I, like, I did with the Greeks. I said, serve Rome. And women will serve Rome. Why? Well, they will give birth to the next generation of men who will be in the army, but also they will raise those children. They will also take care of all the stuff that men have to do while the men are away at war. While the men are away in the reserves, while the men are fighting, you can't have the men Worry about their farm back home. Worry about their business back home. Worry about their uh, practices and law lawsuits back home when they're in the military. So who's going to pick up that slack? And the idea, just like the United States did in the 1940s, is women will take up that slack. Wives will take up that slack. So in exchange, women, Roman women, get rights and protections. Women get an education. Why? Because they have to be able to count. They have to be able to know. They have to be able to read. And really, when we say education, what we really mean is reading and writing. But women need to be able to do that because they have to make contracts in the businesses to sell the grain, to hire uh, workers. They have a marriage veto, so they have control over their body. 
And in fact, poorer women will have more freedom of who to marry than richer women. Patrician women don't have a lot of freedom because that's like the merger of two giant companies when, when patrician women marry. A lot of people are going to have a say in that because a lot of people will be affected by that marriage. But women still had control over their bodies. They had a marriage veto. They keep their family name. So the Romans had a three-name system. They had a first name, you know, your, your personal name. They had your, your mother's family name, and they had your father's family name. So that everyone knew whose family the wife came from. She didn't lose her identity. She kept it. She kept who she was, who she was related to before marriage. She's allowed to inherit money. She has business rights and legal protections. All of that is about money. And why do women have to have legal protections and business rights and inheritance rights? So that they can run things while the men are away. Otherwise, the men go off, they get killed, and who knows who's going to run the business? Who knows who now owns the house? Who knows who's going to run the plantation and pay the workers and and sign and sue if you they, the distributors don't pay, pay them, right? They'll just say, oh, it's a woman. Who cares? Well, that business cares, and thus Rome cares. So women get all of these rights so they can fill in four men when the men are away. The Vestals, the most famous of the Vestal virgins, but that shows just how important women were in Roman religion. They were their own priestesses. They had fertility gods. The Romans have lots of gods, actually. And the idea is, even in religious importance, women are separate and important. They're not reliant on men. For their importance. Women were expected to fill in for their husbands while their men were off at war. So thus they had to have the legal rights to fill in, to act as father's husbands. So because war was a constant fight for survival, women gain rights and they gain seriousness. That's very different from American women. My mother could not get a credit card in her own name in the 1970s without my father's permission, without him going to the bank and co-signing. Because the bank basically said, she's a woman, she's going to buy lots of stuff, she's never going to pay, who's going to pay us back? She's not going to pay us back, she's a woman. That's in the 1970s in the United States of America. It's still true today in 2020. There's a whole thing. Take a look at women and, and Apple credit card. You've got Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, going on Twitter saying, me and my wife's incomes are completely equal. We're, our, our money is completely the same. And yet Apple credit card gave me 10 times the credit balance it gave her. WTF. And I know what the WTF is. It's she's a woman. She's expected not to pay. And you go, how is that possible? Well, because it, it's 2,000 years of female dependence, of misogyny built into the system. Nothing's changed but the surface. 
The underlying algorithms are still the same, but in Rome, they were different. Why? Because Rome was constantly at war. So Rome was constantly the U.S. in 1942, 1943, constantly. So it had to make all of those changes. There's always sacrifices going on. There's always uh, stuff you can't get, stuff you have to give up. Women are going to be just like in Sparta, much more free in Rome, despite it being a very patriarchal society where men had lots of power. But remember, the men aren't always around. And when the men aren't around, women have power. Women are expected to fill in those spaces. Watch TV shows like Rome from the 90s or the Spartacus movies, those Spartacus TV shows, right, on Netflix. Those are powerful women who are taken seriously by the men around them, by the servants around them, by the gladiators around them. So what kind of government is Rome going to have? Well, remember I said a little while ago that Rome was owned for about 100 years by the Etruscans. Well, the Kingslayer, Lucius Brutus, the great ancestor of Marcus Brutus, Brutus who will kill Caesar. And of course, it's Marcus Brutus who has to kill Caesar. This is the tragedy of Marcus Brutus. This is the tragedy that people forget about. His ancestor is the founder. His ancestor is George Washington. His ancestor, Lucius, is the kingslayer, is the father of the country, is the freer of Rome from Etruscan slavery. So when Caesar, who is the kind, who is kind of Marcus's Brutus's stepdad because Caesar has a long running relationship with Marcus's mom so in a in a in, in a way there he's looking at him as a stepdad at best at least as an uncle and then he's seen his uncle's stepdad his mother's lover start to wear purple or off purple start to talk about kingship start to walk the walk of kings and what people start to do to marcus is knock on his door and be like marcus what would lucius say to this he's the kingslayer you're the descendant of the kingslayer if there is one man who is going to save rome from a king it had to be marcus it had to be brutus so the idea kind of like the idea that uh, Dante puts Brutus and, and Cassius, but, but puts Brutus in the level of hell with, with Lucifer, right? As of the great betrayers. It had to be Marcus. And so Shakespeare's E2 Brute and you, Brutus, you too. Brutus's answer is, yes, it had to be me. I led these I led these guys. You knew it was me. It had to be me. Don't and me, stepdad. It had to be me because I am a descendant of Lucius Brutus, the father of the country, the Kingslayer. He leads a revolt against the Etruscan king in 509 BCE. 
kicks out the Etruscans, frees Rome. Rome hates kings. What's the problem? Well, you can't have a monarchy. Well, we've only talked about monarchies and the crazy-ass democracy of Athens. So what else are we going to have? Well, what we create is the Republic. The Republic will be run by rich old men, a group of them. A group of homeboys. The Senate. About 100 to 200. It expands, it shrinks. But about 100 to 200 old rich men who represent the richest, oldest patrician families. The Senate literally means rich old men. So we have a Senate, and who? what is it full of? Rich old men. We've added some women. They're still rich. They're still old. So what they do is elect consuls who will act as generals. Remember, Rome is constantly at war, and they elect those generals from their own members. So to be a general, you have to be basically a rich old man. And the Senate will run by consensus. Everyone agrees. And that forced compromise. Remember, these guys are from these families. They're related to each other. They know each other. It's like our Senate when we created the Senate in the, in the beginning. There were 13 states. That means there were 26 guys who had all fought in the revolution. They all knew each other. The original 26 senators, of course they have rules like, you could talk for as long as you want. Or we have to have 100% agreement to get something moving. Like, of course they did. Because there were 26 of them. They all knew each other. And so they said, we don't have to have politics. We'll just sit down and we'll figure it out. And you still hear this from whether it's President Biden or Joe Manchin or the idea that we don't have to have uh, voting and we don't have to have uh, all of this bickering. We could just sit down in a room and agree. That's this. That's the way our Senate was supposed to be. And that's what they're holding on to. That's what Biden and Manchin and these other people who dream of the Senate dream of. Because that was the original Senate. Because that was the Senate of the Romans. But they had a, they had a reason. They were all related. They all knew each other. They were all homeboys. So they had a reason to agree. To get it moving. They also had to tell all the poor people what they were doing. So if they were fractured, they couldn't then tell the poor people what to do. And so what consensus did was force compromise between the majority and the minority. The majority got what it wants. The minority got protections. So the majority would say, oh, we want to re- we want to do this, X. And the minority group would say, that's fine. We understand you're the majority. You get what you want. But we don't like... Y and Z about your ex. We don't like how it's paid for. We don't like who it's going to affect. It affects too many people. And so then they negotiate and they figure it out and they bring it in and they do. And so the majority still gets X, but the minority gets protected. So it doesn't get run over. That's how our system is supposed to work. That's the Senate representing the plebeians because they're going to have representations in the Senate are the tribunes. They are elected by eligible citizens. Those men of those neighborhoods. So Rome is divided up into 11 
areas in the beginning, and they each get a tribune. And their job, the tribune's job, is not to affect the Senate. It's not the House of Representatives. It is a little bit, but it doesn't make rules. It doesn't make laws. Its job is to be polling and to be an intermediary to patricians. Its job is to tell the patricians what the people think. The war is going on too long. The taxes are too high. You're taking too many men into the army and they're staying too long. Like the Senate will say, we want to do X. Tribunes, go tell the people we want to do X and tell us what they think. We will vote on it tomorrow. And they go to, they call a meeting. They go to their part of the city. They tell what the Senate wants to do. They listen to the reactions. They go back the next day to the Senate and they say, uh, they love it. Or they say, eh, they're okay with it. Or they say, eh, they don't really like it. Or they say, if you do this, you are go. they will burn down Rome. And how the tribunes react to that will determine how the Senate reacts. The Senate will never say, oh, we are, we will do what the people want. This is not a democracy. The Romans, democracy, never had a chance. The crazy stuff that the, the, the Athenians do, the Romans will never do. It is a conservative rule by the rich. But because there's war all the time, they realize they have to listen to the people. In fact, that's going to affect the 12 tables, the laws of Rome, when they didn't. And so they listen, and if it's, hey, we love it, or, oh, I guess they'll go for it, they'll probably pass it, maybe with a few changes, but they'll probably pass it. If it's, I don't know if they want to, and definitely if they're like, they will burn down Rome, the Senate might table it. They'll be like, well, we'll come back to this. Maybe we'll do, you know, let's send it back to committee. You always send something to the committee if you want it to die, but don't want to but don't want to admit that you're being affected by the public polling. But that's the job of the tribunes. The job of the tribunes is to tell the senators, these rich dudes, what the people are thinking. And for 500 years, the system works. And then the senators get too rich, and they stop caring what the people think. And we'll get to that in our next episode. The third part of the Republic, probably the most important part, more than the Senate, more than the representatives, is the Twelve Tables, the laws of Rome. These were written in stone, and they were the uh, innovation is that they applied equally to all. That everybody was treated the same in front of the law. Now, rich people could get lawyers, right? They had more advantages. The judge was a patrician, so you likely got better treated. But the concept was civis Romanus sum. I am a Roman citizen. You took that wherever you walked on earth. Civis Romanus sum. I am protected by the laws of Rome. I am a plebeian. I am poor. I am on welfare. I am a nobody. I am homeless. I am still a Roman citizen, and I am treated by the law the same way as the richest patrician is, as Crassus is. I get legal protections, and I get the privileges, and they are the same. This is very different from Hammurabi's code. 
that treated the rich and the poor differently. For the first time, we really have a law code written down in stone that says the rich and the poor will be treated the same. What military unit did the Romans have? They had the legion. That was their army unit. It was 5,000 men. It was an independent unit. Every legion was its own army. It's the equivalent kind of of a corps today. Uh, It used to be a division, uh, and then Napoleon made it the corps, and it's kind of the corps today. Um, Though maybe, maybe, I mean, in the recent Iraq wars, we kind of went back to divisions. So, um, a corps is, is a bunch of divisions together. But the idea is it's an independent unit. One legion had everything an army needed. It was an independent unit. You could send one legion to go fight a war somewhere in the, against the Gauls. If you sent two or three, it was a big deal. Their weapon was the sword. So they carried a sword and a shield, and that shield protected the soldier, the, the legionnaire. It was uh, to protect themselves. And if you're looking on the video, you can see it's slightly curved inwards, so you could hide behind it. You could put it up, duck your head down, and it would curve around your shoulders. And that would protect you, especially, it's made especially for fighting Gauls, Gaul charges. Because you could, you could put it up, brace yourself, and these, these 200-pound men would climb, cl- cl- hit into you. But because you used a sword, you had to spread out. You couldn't fight in a phalanx next to each other because you would hit the person next to you. So you had to spread out. So what the legion is, if, if the phalanx is a square, the legion is a rectangle. It's thin and wide. It's, it's instead of eight deep, it's eight across and four deep, three deep. The advantage is flexibility. This is a huge advantage. They could turn, back up, faint. The phalanx couldn't do any of this stuff. The legion could do a fighting retreat. It could fight and back up at the same time. Second, all legionnaires were considered to be interchangeable. The way if you're a Marine, you know all Marines are riflemen. The idea of a Marine today is that any Marine should be able to do the job of almost any other Marine almost as well or just as well. They're interchangeable. You shouldn't go, oh, well, those are my best troops and those are sucky troops. It's Roman legionnaires and legions were interchangeable. All men could do all jobs equally well. Third was violence. And armies, and you may go, well, why violence? But armies, their job is violence. And using a sword was not pretty. It cut things off. A Greek um, spear hitting you was terrible, and it punched a hole. And you bled out of that, and that was terrible. But it made a pretty flower on your white tunic. And your body looked like you. You had your head, you had your hands, you had... The sword cut things off you cut off heads you cut off hands cut off arms you wouldn't you might when the romans were done fighting a battle you didn't know what parts belonged to who how do you pick them up how do you lay how do you bury them the romans fought very bloody 
battles, and people were not used to that. This is like Assyrian bloody. And that's not how most people fought. Remember, chariot fights, for the most part, where people ran away, and you won, and you laughed, right? The, the Gauls do the same thing. Yeah, they have these giant swords. They fight naked, and they charge into you. But then you ran away. All these little people would run away. Ah! And they would laugh. <laughs> and they didn't fight very long. In fact, if your hair is on fire and you're naked, you don't want to fight very long. You got to put out your face. You're naked. If they stand and fight, you're in trouble because you're naked and they're in armor. And so people were not used to cutting people into pieces. This is like Assyrian-level violence. The Greeks don't fight this way. The Egyptians, Persians, Babylonians don't fight this way. They fight with arrows. They fight with spears. This is like barbaric Vikings with their giant axes cutting things off. Like, people got freaked out. So that is an advantage when you march and you fight these people, when your legions can do things no one else can do on the battlefield. They could turn, they can move. There's a scene in the original movie Spartacus that is like two minutes long, and it's just these squares. They got guys, because it's not digital, it's done in the 60s, and they do them moving onto the battlefield. Crassus is moving his army onto the battlefield against, against Spartacus and his horde, his just mass of like fighters who can't do any of this. And the legions turn, and then they turn again, and they back up, and you're like, oh my God, how are you going to fight that? It's like a peewee football team versus the, the professional Philadelphia Eagles. Like, how? The Eagles run a play, they run over you. They know what they're doing. They are incredibly practiced. And when one of them hits you, ooh, that's going to hurt. So you don't want to do that anymore. We go, okay, 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 okay. We see this with the when they fight the Greeks. The Greeks just give up and go, hey, stop killing us. Just stop it. Let's, no. The disadvantage is it took training to use a sword and a shield. And there's not always the time. So lots of Romans get killed. Lots of legions get wiped out. Like their win-loss ratio is not as good as it should be for the people who ended up conquering the Mediterranean world. Like, Alexander's win-loss is like uh, near 100%, right? In everything he does. Battles, he's 4-0, right? Undefeated, right? In sieges, which is a whole different kind of fighting, he's this tier, there's a place in India, he's got a whole bunch of them too. Right in guerrilla warfare, that's harder in Afghanistan, but he wins. The Romans, on the other hand, we're going to talk a lot, a bunch of times about Roman defeats. Pyrrhus will defeat the Romans. Hannibal will defeat the Romans. Later on in the empire, the Goths and the Germans will run over the, the Goths, Germans, and Huns will defeat the Romans. And part of the reason, especially for Pyrrhus, especially for Hannibal in the Roman Republic, because they don't have a professional army yet, it took training. And there's not always the time for guys to do that. There's not always the experience for them. 
So you could defeat a Roman legion. They weren't the Assyrians. They weren't undefeatable. They weren't like, why are we even trying? You could defeat them. Their thin lines were easily broken, whether by a phalanx just punching through, like like a pencil punching through aluminum. Like, think of it that way. A pencil just right through aluminum. The phalanx could do it. Elephants. This is why the Greeks, Pyrrhus, will bring elephants to fight the Romans in Italy. And Hannibal will do the same. The idea is that they, they, they will freak out the men and they'll open up these holes. And, the, and what happens is the elephants run right through them. The holes open up. There's now these big gaps. And then the, the horses or the infantry of the army follows right behind the elephants. The elephants aren't supposed to run over people. They're not supposed. They're not the elephants in the Lord of the Rings, the Oliphants, who also are twenty stories tall. But they're not. So, they're not that. They're not tanks. They're 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 more like battering rams. They punch a hole through these lines, and then the 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 infantry fills it. It separates these guys out. They fill it. The Romans freak out. They run away. That's supposed. That's what's supposed to happen. So the advantages, they have all of these advantages that give them the ability to win. They also have huge disadvantages. That means they are going to lose battles. But what the Romans will do is not lose wars. So this constant war equaled an evolution. They had to get tougher to defeat the Gauls. They had to learn to stand in f- and their ground Versus the Golic charge, which was terrifying. 10,000 men charging at you with giant swords screaming at you. Dude, you'd pee your pants and run away. So if you could learn to stand your ground, suddenly you realize that you're, you're protected by your shield. There's this guy with stinky breath on top of you, but he's, he's a, your shield is protecting you from him. He can't hit you because he can't bring the sword down on you. And he's not wearing any underwear. So if you could just get that, move that shield enough to get that stab in, you're going to cut right into him. Suddenly you're going to have the advantage. You've got armor on. You've got a shield. If you can stand, you can win. But you have to be tougher. You have to be braver. And that's not easy. Because everything about the goals is meant to intimidate The second thing is to fight the Greeks in the south, you have to get smarter. So they had to get smarter. They had to evolve. They had to get tactical. They had to get strategic. You can't go charge a Greek phalanx. You have to trap it. You have to outsmart it. They had to outlast Pyrrhus. The Pyrrhic Wars, Pyrrhus comes in. He's got elephants. He's got, he has, he is the new Alexander. He comes in. He's the only guy, the only one who is going to fight and win against both Rome and Carthage. Like, think about that for a second. Like, I know we talk about the Pyrrhic victory, and we'll talk about that in a second, but he is the only guy who has victories, any victories, against both Rome and Carthage, the two leading superpowers of the Mediterranean. He defeats Rome twice. And the third battle is, it seems, to, it's a draw. It seems to be on the battlefield, a Roman victory. That's, I've, I've read the sources 
And the problem is, is the Roman sources will say it's a complete victory. And you're like, yeah, but it's not, you know, but Pyrrhus will leave Italy. He will leave after the battle. So that's kind of a defeat. That's he doesn't mar he does march on Rome earlier after his first or second victory um, and can't sack Rome. Hannibal will find the same problem. Um, you know, these guys will come and not bring siege equipment or, you know, or worse, they the the Italians don't ride the other Latins don't rise up against and help them out. But the idea is to get back to this, they have to outlast Pyrrhus. They will fight Pyrrhus and be defeated. And they will fight Pyrrhus again and be defeated. But they'll make more armies to fight him again. And this is where we get Pyrrhic victory from. Roman battles, even when they're defeated, are so violent, so destructive, that Pyrrhus is famously noted to say, with another victory like this, we'll be ruined. Like, you have won. He's like, yeah, not really. It's costing me so many men, and I can't replace them. The most violent thing in the ancient world is a Roman civil war. They just hack at each other all day. They know each other's codes. They know each other's methods of fighting. Like, they just hack away at each other. You'll get, a, you'll get you know, 50,000 casualties. It's like the, the most destructive war in in England or American history is the civil wars because the, the armies were fighting each other they knew how to fight each other they were the same people um, Pyrrhus was Greek and the Romans were Roman the Romans were Latin so it's a little different but a Roman civil war well the Roman civil war is just incredibly bloody but this leads to a problem what do you do with the defeated and where do you find new recruits to keep fighting all these wars? Like I can't tell you, this constant war, and the Romans are constantly. Well, ever it's like the Greek, it's like a, the Athenian um, bloodbath of the Aegean, right? The Athenians kept losing every time the Spartans and the Persians built a new fleet and fought a new battle. They lost. But the Athenians lost two ships, three ships, four ships. They kept losing men they couldn't replace. Well, that's happening to the Romans. The Romans are going to lose 50,000 troops or 10,000. They're going to lose 25,000 troops fighting Pyrrhus, right? That means you need 25,000 more men to keep fighting Pyrrhus. You have to find them. They're dead. So where do you get them? Where do you get all the recruits to fight the and when they're fighting Pyrrhus, here's the crazy thing. The Romans are also fighting two other wars. They're fighting the Etruscans and Sabini at the, or the Samnites at the same time. They're fighting on three fronts. Where are they getting these men? And that is the concept of Nascio. Where we get nationality from, nation from, but Nascio is the secret sauce. It is what makes Rome, Rome. And it is underappreciated at the time. And it's not really remarked upon later. Like, it's just assumed it's part of the thing. But it is unique. It is what makes the Romans, Romans. It's what makes us, us. In the United States is unique in the world. Because anyone, 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 anyone can become a Roman citizen. Anyone can become an American. 
from no matter where you are. What do you have to do? You had to act like a Roman and you had to fight for Rome. I had a housemate in graduate school who was Jamaican. He joined the U.S. Navy. And then by the time I met him in graduate school, he was a U.S. citizen. He had done his time in the Navy. He had come out. He had done whatever he had to do, whatever he required to do. And he became a U.S. citizen, which meant his wife was going to be, who was Haitian, was going to be a U.S. citizen. And their kids, when they were born, were going to be U.S. citizens by being born in America. That is Roman. Anyone, anyone, anyone can be a Roman citizen. That's huge because nobody else wants to share. The Athenians didn't want to share their democracy. The Spartans certainly didn't want to share being Spartan. It was unique. It was special. It's like, how many people do you want in your marriage? Your marriage is exclusive. It's you and your partner. Do you want like five, six, seven, eight other people to share your marriage? Some people do. Most people are like, yeah, no, 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 no. This is exclusive. It's a me and this one person. To share your republic, to share your values, to share your rights, to bring other people in is for a lot of people to say, my rights mean less. We're seeing this right now. We see this with um, conservative politicians talk about having the right people be able to vote. Of wanting to bring back testing or a poll tax that only certain people should vote. The United States started with this. All men are created equal. No, they weren't. Not only were there women weren't created equal. That's right in the men part. But also black men weren't part of that. Catholics weren't part of that. Poor people weren't part of that. You had to own land. You had to have an income. To be the men in the all men created equal. Not all people, not all men could vote at the start of the country. It, the franchise opens up, but at the beginning it was only, and there's, you read the federal paper, federalist papers. There's, there's Madison saying, you know, if we just let the rabble vote, they'll just vote for themselves. So Nascio is a huge controversial thing that the Romans do. And they, they had problems with it too. There's this, what's called the social wars where people, where foreign non-Romans kept going, I want more rights. And they're like, no, we don't want to give you more rights. We'll give you some rights, but not all the rights. And they actually had a literal war against their neighbors where their neighbors wanted to be more Roman. Like, think about how crazy that is. Every war we're going to fight about is we want to destroy you because you're bad guys. They're like, no, we love you so much. You have to marry us. Like, think about how crazy that kind of war is. How unique that is. This is completely new. No one else was willing to share their citizenship with foreigners. But be, by doing it, the Romans were able to create new Romans. Just like this. Boom. You're a Roman who will fight for Rome because they got rights. They got a vote. They got a say. They got protections of the law. And by 200 BCE, by the end of the Second Punic War, the Romans could put a million men into the army. A million. Do you know how many a million soldiers are? That's as big, if not bigger, than what the American army is today. 
and we spend $700 billion to fund it. Alexander's army, at its biggest, was 120,000 men and almost a huge proportion of that, 75% of them were probably mercenaries. There was an entire, his cavalry was almost all Persians by that point. He had hired Persians and Egyptians. He hired everybody into his army so that Greeks and Macedonians were a core, the best part of his army, but a small part, 20, 30,000 troops, 40,000 troops maybe by that point. The Greek armies, if they hired as many mercenaries as they could afford, couldn't put a million men into the field. Could only top out around 100,000. And that's with all of the money and all of the people in the Eastern Mediterranean. The Romans could put a million men into the field. Like, nobody could compete with that. Just nobody. It's the Soviet Union and the United States in World War II. It's just the United States had 20 million soldiers and sailors at the end of World War II. The Soviet Union had even more. And the Soviet Union had lost 10 to 20 million people, 10 million soldiers. It allowed conquered peoples to get rights, privileges, and to move up in Roman society, despite not being Roman. They got to marry into, rich ones could marry into patrician families. They could marry into middle-class families. But the wars that make Rome, Rome are the three Punic Wars. Who will control the Mediterranean? Hellenistic trade states, Macedon, Carthage, or an Italian land power. And the results are the largest conflict until the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s. So, roughly, we're going on close to 2,000 years later. Rome has to change to win. They have to tap massive amounts of money, human, human potential, material resources. It is the difference. Rome at the start of the wars versus the end of the wars is the difference between the United States in 1940 and 1945, where it's a regional power versus a superpower. Rome learns how to build a navy during the First Punic War, which industrializes its economy. Because to build a navy, you have to have logging, you have to have carpenters, you have to have all the metal that's going to be used to put, put uh, bind things together. You have to have uh, the wood for the mast, you have to have the wood for the oars, you have to have the cotton or the silk for the, for the um, uh, sails. You have to have the education to know how to run a boat. There's an entire industrial, uh, Britain will do this in the 1700s. This entire, by building a large navy, it entirely changes your economy because there's so much that goes into. You have to have the dry docks. You have to have the ports. You have to have, and remember, then you could use the boat for trade or you could build boats for trade that you could protect with your military boats. So once you've got a boat, if it's not at war, you could try to put stuff on it and sell stuff. 
They have to learn how to control an empire after conquering Sicily, Sardinia, and Corsica from the from the Carthage, Carthaginians. That brings in cheap food. It brings in lots of money, but it also forces the Romans to have to have a government and responsibility that can deal with these faraway places, that can deal with control over non-Italians for the first time. They have to have governors, ambassadors. They have to build ports so that Roman ships can get in. They have to, they have to create, um, they have to bring in the law code. So who owns what land? What taxes will they pay? Will they serve in the Roman army? All of that kind of government and responsibility to allow them to tap into those local resources. The Second Punic War, Rome almost loses. Hannibal invades Italy. He crosses over, he goes from Spain, crosses over the Pyrenees, picks up a lot of Gauls along the way, crosses over the Alps in winter with one of the most famous phrases in all of military history. When asked, How we will, how, Hannibal, how will we cross the Alps? Hannibal says, We will find a path or we will make one. Well, people were inspired by that. They're like, Let's go. He crosses into Italy, he crushes the Romans. In northern Italy, in Cisalpine Gaul, he then crushes them again in central Italy. He then crushes them again at Cannae. And Cannae is his glorious victory. Cannae is the worst defeat Rome suffers till for the next thousand years, roughly. To the Battle of Adrianople. And the Battle of Adrianople is the end of the Roman Empire. The Battle of Cannae is 70,000 Romans are killed in a day. If you want to look at kind of how it works... Um, you have to, you can look at the Battle of the Bastards in Game of Thrones, where the Romans, who are the bigger army, get sucked into a trap, get surrounded, get turned into this giant mass of a ball that's crushing as the phalanxes of, of Carthage's mercenaries move in and start butchering people. And it's estimated by one historian, 800 men a minute were being killed. Some 80 senators are killed in the battle. It is a complete and utter destruction of a Roman army. Something that that really, the closest thing is the Battle of the Tudenberg Forest, which ends the invasion of Germany. And that's nowhere near as de- devastating as this. This is such a devastating battle, the Romans made crying illegal in public. Because the idea was, we have all suffered. If somebody cries, we will. everyone's going to start crying and no one's going to want to continue the war. So Rome had to let Hannibal wreck Italy in order to win the war in Spain and Africa. So Hannibal is in Italy with his, with his mercenary army wrecking the place. What the Romans did is get on their ships and go and attack his supply lines. Go and attack his reinforcement lines from Africa, from Spain. They had to find a general who could win, who could inspire troops. Eventually, that becomes 24-year-old Scipio. Scipio, who will be known as Scipio Africanus, the conqueror of Africa. He's 24. Why him? You had to be an old man to be a general. Why Scipio? Well, they had hired his father. His father got killed in Spain. And the Spanish allies wouldn't fight for anybody who wasn't a Scipio. So they got Scipio's... Uh, they got the older brother. So the father had died. They got Scipio's older brother. So he goes, he he shows up. He says, I'm a Scipio. They say, great, we're with you. Let's go fight the Carthaginians and their allies. They fight, they fight, they fight. That Scipio gets killed. 
So then they go, they go knock on the door and go, well, you're 24. You're going to Spain. You're the general now. Because without him, the Spanish troops, the Spanish allies wouldn't have fought. So they changed. They were willing to change in order to win. Scipio turns out to be a brilliant general. There's a, a book by, I think it's B.H. Lindell Hart, that's called Better Than Napoleon. That Scipio is one of the, the most underrated generals in all of military history. He wins in Spain. He robs Hannibal of supplies. He then is able to get on his ships, go to Africa, and defeat Hannibal at Zama on Hannibal's home turf. Hannibal, when Scipio invaded, invaded Carthage, invaded Africa, Hannibal had to escape Italy by himself. He couldn't bring his army with him because the Roman Navy and hit squads were out to try to get him. He, he somehow gets through the blockade. He somehow avoids all the assassins killing him. He gets back to Carthage as a hero. He shows up. He's a hero. He's going to save Africa. He's going to save Carthage. They give him an army. It is a brand new army. It is a brand spanking new army that has never been used before. That's a problem for an army versus Scipio's army that has 10 years of experience. And they fight, and Scipio wins. Hannibal will flee the assassins for the next 20 years. He'll end up in the east. Um, Scipio becomes a hero, becomes Scipio Africanus. The Second Punic War is a stunning victory, but it forced Rome to become a superpower. They had a million men in the army, and another million men probably died during the conflict in battle. Those numbers are just, in the ancient world, they're just stunning. They're just, there's nothing to compete. They were playing on a level no one else could play on. They were, they were the United States or the Soviet Union in 1945. They were just far and away bigger, better than everybody else. The third war is, shows the Romans could be mean. It's 50 years later. Carthage is a small city. It's basically just doing some, some business work. It's, it's buying and trading some intermediary. And the Roman army shows up for revenge. And the Carthaginians are like, what, what, what do we do? And basically the answer is, you exist. And it's the complete destruction of a weakened Carthage. They plow fields with salt, or at least that's the story, so that nothing would grow there again. A hundred years later, the Romans will have to rebuild Carthage because it turns out Carthage is a natural port. The winds and the tides bring ships to where Carthage is. And so just economics forced them to have to rebuild Carthage. And Carthage would become a great city again. So was it really the fields plowed with salt? But they wanted people to think the fields were plowed with salt. So nothing. But that means bringing in tons of salt. Think about how many ships need to bring in tons of salt. Then you have to have workers unload this stuff. You had to have workers collect it and load it. You had to want. Think about how vengeful that had to be. How angry you had to be when you filled multiple ships full of salt. I mean, like, we are going to plow this into the fields. They enslave and obliterate the entire population. So those they don't kill, they enslave in a day. Some 50,000 people and sell them into the slave markets. So we have industrialized slavery in the Roman world. They could, they could capture slaves and sell them off in, in a way that is not seen again until the 1500s, to the African slave trade in, in the 1500s. 
in Europe. Like even the Vikings, who take lots of slaves, do not are not capable of moving this amount of people this quickly with this much money. In 146 BCE, Rome is a superpower who could obliterate entire peoples without even trying. And if you're in the video, if you watch the TV show Spartacus in season one, there's a guy called the Beast of Carthage. He's a he's an African American man. He's a black man, because. The idea is Carthage is in Africa. So even though Carthage was Phoenician, meaning it was um, Middle Eastern, it's Lebanese, it's Lebanon, and the culture is Greek, Hellenistic, that they would have mixed with African peoples from across the Sahara. And so in the the storyline of the TV show of Spartacus, Blood and Sand, season one, the, the beast of Carthage is forced to fight his father after slaying as many countrymen as he could in gladiatorial games. That that's what the Romans did to the Carthaginians. They slaughtered them and had them slaughter each other. So what is the consequences? Rome becomes a superpower and becomes sophisticated. They get one world market from the Atlantic to the Euphrates. It brings in huge amounts of money because of the ease of buying and selling stuff. The war infrastructure, the stuff they had to build to win all of these wars, to first conquer the Latins, then the Etruscans and the Greeks, and then the Gauls, and then Carthage, Spain, the islands, allowed for roads, navies, frontier towns, mining, post-war economic growth. All roads literally led to Rome, which meant all money flowed into Rome through trade. The conquest of the Greek kingdoms, which happens after the uh, Second Punic War and after the Third Punic War, allows for the importation of Greek culture, plays, philosophy, dress. Romans start wearing the toga, elite Romans. Elite Romans start acting Greek because Greek is sophisticated. Notice they are stopped. They're not no longer acting Roman. They're no longer acting Latin. They're starting to act Greek. What does that tell you about middle class or poor Romans? It means culture is pulling them apart, is separating them. Sophisticated Romans are acting Greek and they're leaving. They're less sophisticated, less endowed with money, less rich brethren behind. What does it mean? What does Nashio now mean? It means to act like a Roman, right? Which Roman? Because the richest Romans are acting Greek. The other thing it brings in is war slaves, cheap labor, which is huge competition for Roman workers and farmers and easy money for the rich who can afford them. So the rich become super rich. Slaves create plantations which create world economic investments. You can buy olives in Asia Minor. You could buy oranges in Spain and you could ship them on you know, the Roman equivalent of FedEx and UPS to Rome and then sell them at a high, high markup in, Rome, in Roman markets. All that brings in money, which makes you richer, which allows you for more investments. You buy more land for plantations. You buy more infrastructure. You buy more businesses and you make more money. So the rich become super rich. What about the poor? What about the plebeians? 
Well, the plebeians have a K-shaped recovery. Some ple plebeians are doing going to do well, and some are going to do worse. So what about the worst ones? Well, Hannibal destroyed most of the Italian farms, and he killed around a million people. So what do you end up with? A lot of widows and orphans who are destitute, who need to be taken care of, like their husbands fought, right? Their farms are destroyed. These widows and orphans cannot. They don't have the money. They don't have the savings. They don't have the man to help recover. So that means the government has to help them. So the invention of welfare, food and supplies to stay alive, not to recover, not to get wealthy, but just to subsist. What about for poor? You can imagine how the widows and orphans feel about that. They're going to have to go and live with family members. They're going to have to now be in their parents' home or their brother's home, their cousin's home. They're a bird. Yeah, they get some food and they get some money to stay alive. And they're a burden because they can't do anything else. They can't be independent because the welfare isn't enough. What about poor farmers? Well, they're destitute too. They have to rebuild their farms. Or their farms get bought at a cheap price by the super rich who now have all of these slaves. So it means you can't sell your goods. My, your, your apples are now too expensive on the market versus the slaves next door who don't cost any labor, who don't cost any money for labor. Hey, neighbor, you don't pay for labor, as they say in Hamilton. As Hamilton uh, critiques Jefferson, where Jefferson's all like, hey, every, we're making plenty of stuff. You know, we have it easy in the shade. And Hamilton's like, yeah, you don't pay, you're a slaver. You don't pay for labor. So these poor farmers can't compete. So they end up on welfare. And they have no dignitas. It's a humiliation. We won the war. I defeated Hannibal. I was at Zama. And now I'm on welfare and my kids don't respect me and my wife is having an affair with the baker because he's got a job and I don't I lost my house to the plantation next door to the rich guy. WTF. What the F man? How did this we won? How did I end up here? So you have this resentment. And the middle class, there's not, there isn't really a middle class, but there is a group of people who can access world markets, banks, investments. These are more of your merchant class. These are your money classes. There are not many of them. They're your educated classes, like your priests. These people will do well. That's the upper going up of the K shape. So plebeians are breaking apart. The, the rich have left everybody behind. They are freaking astronauts on a rocket ship. The plebeians are going in this K shape. The, the ordinary farmers are losing, are going down, while those who are more moneyed, more into education, more into skills, more into merchants and selling, have more access to world markets, have more access to credit, have more access to investments. Remember, the super rich need to invest in stuff. So it's like Shark Tank, but without, like, but with not four guys, but 400 rich guys. And one of them is going to give you money if you have a good idea. So they do well. And they will take that money and spend it to get a Greek education, especially for their children. And they will work for the super rich. They'll become the accountants. They'll become the plantation owner, uh, 
managers. They will do the education work. They will sell their brains more than their bodies. But they become dependent on work, on labor, on income by the super rich. It's equivalent to college-educated workers in the United States since 1980. Increasingly, you need, and you know this, to do well in America, you have to get a college education. Those who have a college education have made a lot more money over the last 40 years than those who didn't. All the statistics. We start our class with my introduction being like, congratulations, you're in college. You have to be in college if you want to make $100,000 and you want to succeed. And you'll have a plenty of people be like, no, you don't. And you're like, there are always exceptions, yes. But the vast majority of people, you have to. It's where all the trend lines are. So income inequality is ending republicanism, ending the idea that we are all in it together. It is pulling peoples apart. It is pulling the republic apart. The rich don't are so rich they don't have to care what the poor think. They could just bribe the poor. The poor don't have dignity. They don't have dignitas. So they resent the rich for not paying their fair share, for not giving them, for not helping them. And the middle class is terrified because they look at the poor people and say, I don't want to be that. But they look at the rich saying, I can't be that. I can't marry into those families. I can't become them. I'm not them. But if they fire me, if I lose my job, I, I am way more close to being poor than being rich. And that's the situation America has been in. That's how we get some of the people we've elected, is that fear that things are going wrong or things, if we don't change, will get worse. It is my argument that America in 2020 looks a lot like the Roman Republic around, you know, 125 BCE. It's coming apart. It's, it's pieces are fraying. It could be reformed. It could come back together. But there are problems, and those problems need to be addressed. Those problems need to be reformed. The rich are too rich. The poor are too poor. And the middle class is too afraid. And that's where we will end. Thank you.